I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And we look today at verses 34 through 37. Before we read, let me just say this in way of introduction. We are returning to the synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus is surrounded by his disciples and by a great multitude numbering no doubt in the thousands and probably people all around not even able to hear all that they would like to hear there in that scene. There is an intense exchange occurring between Jesus and this Jewish multitude. They have an interest in a Messiah, a, a promised Savior, but they are figuring out that Jesus of Nazareth is speaking a different language than they are speaking. He, in other words, is focused on different priorities than they are. They have said to him, we want bread, we want food. Feed us like you did yesterday. Feed us today. Feed us like Moses fed the children of Israel with manna. For 40 years, if you'll do this, we'll believe you. We'll be your disciples. I was interested to read this past week that there is one Jewish tradition that said when the Messiah appeared, there would be great feasts. And they believed that uh, Leviathan and Behemoth would be slain and their flesh made into a great feast for Israel. These, these great animals that are spoken of in the, in the book of Job would be what the people would feast upon in the days of Messiah. Well, again, that's a Jewish tradition, and a lot of Jewish traditions are just as nonsensical as they can be. The Lord Jesus here in his talk to this multitude keeps telling them, you should be desiring different bread, different food, what he calls true bread, not the common food for the body, but spiritual bread, which comes from the highest heaven, and gives everlasting life to the world. And that's where we left things at the end of verse 33, last Lord's Day. Now we come to verse 34, and here is a request and our Lord's response. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. 
But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And we'll pause the reading there and have to take the rest of it next time, Lord willing. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. We see this request then in verse 34 by the multitude. I would call it a confused request. A request from very confused people. Lord, evermore give us this bread. No doubt it's significant that they still call him Lord here. This was a title of respect, even though they have been somewhat insulting to him, as we saw last time in verses 30 and 31. They are still maintaining some civility toward him. In the same way, they called him rabbi there earlier in verse 25. Here they're calling him Lord, but... I fear that by this point in the conversation, they were more flattering of him than genuinely respectful of him. The word Lord sometimes simply means sir, and that's probably all that they meant by it here. They they weren't addressing him Lord in the way that you and I address him as Lord, as Son of God and our Savior. But they say, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Give us this bread that you are talking about, this bread of life, this bread that comes from heaven, this bread that gives life, true bread, and give it to us now and give it to us always evermore give us this bread from the way that the lord answers them there's no question and he knew their hearts and so there's absolutely no question that they still have not grasped the spiritual concept that jesus is talking about. They are thinking still in terms of food for the belly, bread to put into your mouth and chew and swallow. They seem unable to get on track with him and unable to get beyond earthly things to heavenly things. They can't get from carnal things to spiritual things here. And I have to explain that because on the surface, their words here uh, have much to commend them. Lord, evermore give us this bread. They are, after all, uh, confessing some need here, some hunger. They are confessing that Jesus is the source and the supply of that need. They indicate here a desire for a lasting supply. Evermore give us this bread. 
And obviously there's a, a sense of urgency in this request. And without the broader context of John chapter 6, if we just read this verse, we would say, well, this is wonderful. They're, they're finally coming to understand. <clears throat> Today, many churches and zealous soul winners would lead this multitude to repeat the sinner's prayer at this point and make a profession of faith and declare the matter settled once and for good. They have requested this bread that Jesus is talking about. Everything is so good. And they would report the next day that we had 5,000 saved. The slightest interest in religion, coupled with saying right-sounding words, is all that is expected today. That's how far astray things are, generally speaking, in present-day evangelism. Well, obviously, Jesus didn't handle these people in that way at all, did he? He knew that not all that glitters is gold. He knew that they needed more instruction, and they needed much more instruction. What these people say here in this request is much like what the woman at Jacob's well in Samaria said back in chapter 4, verse 15, after Jesus talks about his supply of the water of life and that this water would be, uh, would spring up, the water that he would give her would spring up into everlasting life. The woman says to him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. The, the, the parallel between the woman at the well and what Jesus says about the water and her request for it. And the scene here in John 6 with this multitude and the discourse about the bread of life and their request of it. Uh, the, the parallels are just striking. You can't miss it. In both cases, we see carnal thinking, earthly thinking, temporal thinking. Thank the Lord, the story of the woman in John chapter 4 has a much happier ending. She came to get on track with Jesus, and she, she came to understand what he was talking about. These people never came to that point, unfortunately. Let us who know the Lord pray for wisdom and discernment in dealing with people like this, dealing with a woman at the well, dealing with a multitude in, in the synagogue. We need God-given discernment to deal with those who have some interest in religion 
and who are in fact saying some good things and, and saying some of the right words. But let's move on here to the Lord's answer. And again, we'll not look at all of the answer because it goes on through verse 40. But what we have here in these first three verses of his answer, 35 through 37, I would point out kind of a five-pronged answer here, five parts to what we see here. First of all, he makes a positive identification of himself. <clears throat> he says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. You recall that we mentioned last time from verse 33 that the, the pronoun he there could well be translated that for the bread of God is that which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. I, I think it is probably not until this statement in verse 35 that Jesus drops the bombshell, we might say, upon them and says it in such bold and unmistakable terms. I am the bread of life. He says this to clarify and correct their confused thinking. He says to them in so many words, I'm not talking about table bread. I'm not talking about common bread. I'm the bread that I'm talking about. In the loaves and fishes of yesterday, see an illustration of me as that which feeds and satisfies the soul and gives eternal life. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ is the personification of bread. He's the true bread from heaven that feeds the soul with everlasting salvation. What common bread is to our body, Jesus is to our soul. That's the significance of this marvelous statement. And this, of course, is the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John where Jesus says, I am the bread, then I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the shepherd, I am the resurrection, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine. This is a marvelous declaration here. I am the bread of the life. There is a definite article there before the word life, and it could well be translated this way. I am the bread of the life, <clears throat> a particular life, eternal life, life with God, fellowship with God that begins here by faith in Christ 
and continues on in a greater dimension in realms of glory to come, eternal life. So this is the first part of his answer, is simply to identify himself in terms of the illustration, I'm the bread of life. I want to ask you that today, do you have this life? Are you conscious of a principle of life that you do not naturally possess, that you have come to have by the grace of God through Jesus Christ? Are you conscious of a life that is foreign to you naturally, that has been implanted into you supernaturally? Do you know what it is to live toward God, to be alive to Him? Do you know what it is to feed upon Christ as the bread of life and to draw nourishment and life from Him? Do you feed on Him in your heart? Are you feeding on Him here today, in this hour? Is Is his life in you? Does he live in you? Do you know what it is to pass from death unto life through Jesus Christ? Well, this is the the, the crux of the matter. This is the great issue. This is the great matter at hand. And Jesus is the life and he is the way And he's the life giver, and he's the life imparter, and he's the life sustainer. I'm the bread of life. And outside of Christ, there's nothing but death. And there are a lot of dead people, spiritually dead people, who are alive physically, And they get up in the morning and they go to work and they come back home and they eat and they sleep. And they are as dead in the sight of God and toward God as they can be. Jesus is the bread of life. He brings us into a living, vital relationship with God. Let us feast upon him. Well, the next part of his answer is in the rest of verse 35. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He speaks here of a full satisfaction of soul for all who come to him, all who, uh, to use the illustration, all who eat of this bread of life, there is a full contentment. Now, I want you to notice the illustration here is, is to eat bread. Jesus says, I'm the bread. And so if he's the bread, what is it to eat? He tells us here in this part of his answer. To feed upon Christ as the bread of life is described here as 
coming to him, coming to him. And that coming to him is further described in the next phrase as believing on him. Look at it carefully. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. You see the parallelism there. To come to him is to believe on him. When you are bidden to come to Christ, you are bidden to believe on him, in other words. And this believing on him is the action of the soul that was described as the work of God in verse 29. This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. It's not a meritorious work. It's not some work that we do that earns salvation or earns the grace of God in any way. But it is a work in as much as it is a conscious, deliberate, decisive action in the soul. To lean all of your weight upon Him. Trusting Him to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And what no one else can do for you. And that is to provide you with a righteousness, a perfection. By which to be acceptable to God. And perfection is what he demands. And that perfection is only found in Christ. And to believe on him or to come to him is exactly that. To, to lean your soul upon him. Now notice what he promises here to those who, who believe on him. He says they'll never hunger and they'll never thirst. He uses both uh, food and uh, water here as illustration. <clears throat> and it's stated in negative terms. Not to hunger. Not to thirst. And the negative here is a very emphatic negative. It's, in our English language, we don't use this kind of, or we don't speak like this. In the Greek language, they do. If we were maybe translating in a in a very strangely literal way, it would say, "He that cometh to me shall not not hunger." But the double negative does not make it a positive. The double negative emphasizes all the more the negative. And similarly, in the last part of the verse, only perhaps even more emphatically, will not not thirst forever. The Lord spoke the same way to the woman at the well, by the way, in John chapter 4, when he said, Whosoever shall drink of the water that I shall give him shall never, never thirst. Now, what's Jesus saying to us here? Well, oftentimes... In Scripture, things are stated in a very emphatic, negative way. 
rather than a positive way. But if we were going to say this in a positive way, how, how would it be said? Jesus would say, I fully, fully satisfy all who believe on me for salvation. I fill, I satisfy fully the soul that feeds on me. So much so that there's no more hunger, no more thirst. There's peace and contentment and joy. Those who believe savingly on Christ are never the same thereafter. And of course, the believing it continues. It, it's not just a, a moment of believing. It's a beginning of believing that continues on and on. But we're never the same. We never hunger and thirst as we did before in a, in a hopeless and desperate search for things that never satisfy When we find Christ, our search is over. <laughs> we have found what we craved. And we never hunger and thirst again. And though many have spent many years trying desperately to find fullness and satisfaction and contentment and peace, in every other way other than through Christ. And we naturally try every other method and source. We never find what we're looking for. We keep coming up empty. and We think we found some new thrill or or some new person, or some new thing, or some new direction, some new entertainment, some new hobby, some new interest. And after a while, it grows old and we look for another one. We've got to have a new thrill. Listen, that search never ends until and unless you find Jesus Christ. And you enter into salvation with him. And your thirst and your hunger is satisfied for good. Yes, in one sense, your appetite for him keeps growing. But he keeps feeding. And, and, and you keep feasting day after day. Remember in the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And he's saying that same thing here, only in negative terms. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Are you a hungry soul today? Stop looking anywhere else for what your soul hungers for and craves for. You'll find it only in Christ. He is it. He's the end of your search. 
And in Him you can enjoy a continual feast. Why would people reject the bread of life and feed on junk food? And that's what the the world and its attractions are. That's what false religion is. You know, junk food only leaves you hungry for more. And and, 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 and some have done the scientific studies on this and can explain it better than I can. But that doesn't satisfy and fill. It's a slow method of starvation to just live on junk food. Here's real bread. Here's what really satisfies. Here's real food, spiritually speaking. It's in Christ, and Christ is it. We must move on here. The third thing he says in verse 36 is really a a very honest exposure of the heart of these people. He said, uh, I say unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not You know, they had just said to him in verse 30, uh, we want to see so that we can believe. Seeing is believing. And here he says, you have seen and you still haven't believed. We talked about this some last time. They had seen Christ. They had seen many miracles and they still had not truly come to him and come to know him and come to believe on him. And exactly what he's referring to here as he says, I said unto you, perhaps this was part of the communication that's not recorded by inspiration here. Or perhaps this is something of a summary of what he'd been saying all along from verse 26. But whatever the case, he speaks very honestly and he exposes their unbelief here. They were so proud of their ancestry and we, we're better than the Gentiles. We're better than the Samaritans while we're Jews. And in our ancestry, we have Moses and we have the patriarchs and we have things like manna from heaven and, and all this. And Jesus tells them, you're still in unbelief. People may be physical descendants of believers, but they are not automatically in a safe position with God. Jesus says to these people in so many words, you may be children of Moses and Abraham, but you're just as unbelieving as the children of pagans. You've seen me and you don't believe. Don't rest upon your birth privileges and upon your parents and grandparents. You must come to rest upon Christ alone. Well, the unbelief of the Jews here that Jesus exposes does not mean that he was in any way a failure with them. And that brings us to verse 37. And John 6, 37 is one of the most marvelous and glorious verses in all of Scripture. 
it can stand alone on its own two feet, but we'll emphasize the context here. He says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And again, this is part four and part five of Christ's answer here in these verses. Part four is to say something about God's overall purpose of grace. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Is the unbelief of this multitude on that day indication of a failure on his part? No, far from it. He is a perfect success. He can say, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And this seems to be something that gave him comfort. Here he had invested some hours and days with these people. And they're still in unbelief. They still don't recognize him and believe on him. And he finds comfort in knowing that those that the Father has given him will, in fact, come to him. And he mentions it also as perhaps a soul-searching warning for these people. This is one of the great statements by our Lord Jesus as a man on earth concerning the sovereignty of God in salvation. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. The Father chose and gave a people to the Son to redeem. And all of those people will certainly and without exception come to the Son in faith. They will exercise saving faith in him. That's what it is to come to him, as we saw in verse 35. And, you know, you could preach a whole series of messages just on this one verse. But let me just say this. Our Lord is plainly telling us here that coming to him, or in other words, believing in him, is certain evidence of election by God in eternity past, if we can call it that. I know that's kind of a contradiction in itself to speak of eternity past, but how else can we say it? We read earlier from first or from second Peter chapter one that we are to make our calling and election sure. How do we make sure of our election? By God, by making sure that we've been called by him. In other words, that we have come to believe upon him, that he has powerfully drawn us and called us in that way unto himself. And it's, it's striking to me here that our Lord introduces the doctrine of election here to this unbelieving multitude. And though the doctrine of election should be handled carefully, we need not try to hide it from anybody. It may be the very thing that the Lord uses to, to
to humble them and to provoke them to seek the Lord while he may be found. Mr. Spurgeon said more people became Christians by hearing him preach on the doctrine of election than any other subject. Would to God the multitude here had had that testimony. But the mention of God's overall purpose of grace and his, his, really it comes as a solemn warning to them that though they assume that they are the chosen people and the chosen nation, the chosen race, he says, if you don't come to me and believe on me, then you may be a member of this chosen nation that's just an earthly reality, but you've not been chosen by the Father and given to me to be your Redeemer. Oh, this is a solemn and soul-searching matter. But having said all that and implied all that, notice what he says next. And him that cometh to me, or him who believes in me, I will in no wise cast out. It's as if immediately upon declaring to them this this very solemn truth of sovereign election by God, he turns around and says, don't let that truth discourage you, but rather let it encourage you to come to me He says, I won't turn away anyone who comes to me. I won't turn away anyone who believes on me. And again, in the original language, there's a double negative here. I will in no wise, I will not not cast out. Well, that strong negative implies a positive. And so stating it positively, what is he promising here? He's saying, him who comes to me will receive a hearty welcome, a warm reception. I will forgive all of their sins. There's no sin that is so great that I will refuse those who come to me. We read in Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's saying that here in so many words. And I would point out just in passing that we see in this verse the harmony of the Father and the Son in the the work of redemption. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Those that the Father chooses to save are those whom the Son gladly receives. There's there's a, a beautiful symmetry and harmony here in the persons of the Trinity. But the main thing I want you to see here is the absolute safety and security of those who believe on Christ. So much more could be said on John 
But let me just close with this emphasis that this, I say, is a most wonderful verse. It's music to our ears. We have in one breath a strong and clear statement of the sovereignty of God in salvation and a strong and clear promise that anyone who wants to be saved can be saved. And so I'll just close by saying this. This verse is an open invitation. Friend, take this as an open invitation today to come and believe on Christ. He will not turn you away. He's never turned any away who sought him as Savior and Lord. Far from casting out or turning out, He will roll out the red carpet for you. And He did that for me. He's done it for multitudes. And He'll do it for you. You might as well be saved to believe on Him. Come to him. Feed on him. Listen, the table is spread. Come and eat. If you go home hungry, you have no one to blame but yourself.